0: Welcome to Entrench, a 21 Pilots podcast. Hello, local dreamers. Welcome to Entrench. My name is Anna, and in today's bonus episode, we will be discussing Act 2 of All My Sons. Make sure you read the section beforehand if you don't want spoilers. Once again, this play contains a trigger warning for suicide. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed the Act 1 analysis. Admittedly, Act 2, I am probably the most rusty on, so I will attempt to summarize, but it might be sketchy. (laughs) So hopefully you remember better than I do. The final character who officially enters the fray that we've alluded to at the end of Act 1 is George, who once again is Annie's brother, and he's also a lawyer, and so he had some crucial information for Annie, and he wanted to fly in, so that is our last character that will... I keep saying, because when I was looking at this before, I was like, he will also be in Act 3, and I'm pretty sure he's not. I'm pretty sure he's only in Act 2, so I don't know why I want to keep saying that, but anyway. He is in Act 2, in abundance, and so summary-wise... I mean, I feel like Act 2 is just a lot of tension and conflict. (laughs) So we started off with coming out of Act 1, which ended with this ominous tone for the Kellers between Kate and Keller. And Act 2 starts out with Chris, who is cleaning up and clearing out the broken tree from the storm before. The scene starts between him and mother, and a pretty casual conversation to start off. They're talking about grape drink, because George always liked grape drink, and as I said before, Annie and thus George used to be neighbors to the colors, so I think this is the first time George has been back in their hometown since, I don't know. A really long time so everyone's like expecting him and excited to see him even though there's also some like nerves and uncertainty for what he's coming to convey relay i feel like relay is a better word than convey <laughs> so Anne has dressed up and she comes out onto the porch sorry i feel like my chair is making a lot of noise i really need a new chair it's admittedly a very old chair so it's very creaky if it ain't broke don't fix it (laughs) literally one day i'm just gonna be like my chair broke and now i have to buy a new one (laughs) yeah so annie comes on all dressed up and apparently sue comes over i don't remember that actually she's like just looking for her husband i don't think she stays very long so basically all the neighbors are finding out that george is coming over Sue and Anne are talking for a while, and Sue is basically like, everyone thinks that Keller did it. Not Steve, Anne's dad. And Anne is incredulous, but Sue's like, yeah, everyone was just basically, you know, treating the Kellers with common decency. Just because, you know, they're generally good people, but like, yeah, everyone believes that Keller did it around here. But Anne's not really buying it. So Anne tells Chris this, and he's kind of like, okay, why why does it matter what other people think? But Anne's like, just so you know, like, regardless, I don't think that. I never have suspected him. And Chris is just, like, reassuring her it's not him. His behavior doesn't line up with that. Really in defense of his dad. And then Keller comes back from whatever he was up to. Again, there's a lot of tension, so Keller brings up Steve again to Anne, and like, you should really forgive him, because he's your father, and emphasizing father's intentions, and how father's intentions can only be good, and then Lydia comes around, and she's also excited to see George, and then George comes on, and everyone greets him as the, like, nostalgic neighbor that he is. Sorry, I'm kind of like skim reading while I'm summarizing, because I feel like there's a lot of little pieces that I've missed, because I'm very biased by like the certain notes that I wrote down, but I don't want to just use the summary to reiterate all of my notes, because then it'll just spoil all the main points that I want to talk about, so I'm trying to be broader than just what my notes are. And again, each time I'm recording a new discussion, it's like a week even further away from when I read it, so yeah, it's just getting hazy by the week, but... That's okay. That's life. That's normal. So George is basically upset that Anne wants to marry Chris and marry into this family when he's very skeptical of Keller and distrust, mistrusting. And so he really wants Anne to come home with him. And she ends up not going home with him. There's a lot of tension. There's a lot of arguing, as I've already alluded to. They talk about sicknesses, and there's kind of, with Keller... And there's like some inconsistencies there. and that frustrates George even more. Okay, so that bit with the inconsistency with the sickness has not happened yet. But George is bringing it up to Chris because it, he's convinced that it was just an excuse for Keller getting out of the limelight and out of responsibility for what he believes Keller did do. George is still trying to believe with Anne. And then Mother comes on. She's irritated with Anne because he didn't feed George at all, and so she makes him eat. And she's basically taking jabs at Anne that she didn't care for him properly. And then Lydia finally comes onto the scene to see George because they knew each other way back. There's kind of this awkwardness because you can tell that George likes Lydia, but she's married with children now, and perhaps she used to like him as well because she's kind of awkward about bringing up her family and everything. And then he kind of wistfully watches her go, as they tend to do. <laughs> Lost love. I don't remember who this is, but Chris says he looks like a gorilla. So then they all keep talking, Mother, George, and Chris Keller. And then they get to the sickness inconsistency. That was a, That's what I had said earlier, where... Mother and Keller are claiming that he was sick and then they contradict themselves. I'll get into detail on that later because that's obviously a huge point in this act. And then it gets way more intense and escalates a lot quicker. George leaves, once again pleads for Anne to leave with him and to not stay with these people. She refuses and he's upset. He leaves upset and Anne follows him because she desperately doesn't want him to think that she hates him or or anything. And so then it's just Chris, Mother, and Keller at the very end of this act, and it gets really intense. Keller basically reinforces that he believes that Larry is dead, and Mother punches him out of rage. And then it comes out. I think it comes out through Mother. She finally says, well then, if you believe he's dead, it's because your father killed him. And Keller's frustrated, pleads to Chris. He never flew a P-40, which were the types of planes that the pilots died in, and that received the cracked cylinder heads. But at that point, Chris is like, so you did it. Because you're trying to argue a point in defense of Larry and deflecting what the reality is in relation to the other pilots. The consequence of that is murder and Keller is trying to argue that it's not murder and Chris asks for an explanation and Keller explains that he didn't have the ability to remake them and it would have tanked business I believe and so that's why he had to paint over them and send them out anyway and so he admits to it and Chris gets very angry and he leaves and that's this end of the act. Thanks for sticking in there with me. It was quite bumpier than that one. So now we can get into all these juicy details. So the first thing I pointed out that is on the very first page is that Steve, Annie's father, is convinced Keller made him send the parts. Mother and Chris are talking, and Mother says he's worried. In reference to Keller, when he's worried, he sleeps. We're dumb, Chris. Dad and I are stupid people. We don't know anything. We've got to protect us. Chris, you're silly. What's there to be afraid of? Mother. To his last day in court, Steve never gave up the idea that dad made him do it. If they're going to open the case again, I won't live through it. And so it's initially set up with the fact from mother who, you know, is generally trying to deny a lot of things. So it's a big deal that she is saying this, that he never gave up the idea that Dad made him do it, regardless if she believes it or not. It seems like a very legitimate fact that she brought up. Which, again, we're back into truth versus lies, but I think this is very real coming from this character who is very prone to shy away from reality. We just get that sense from Mother. And so despite how Keller ended Act 1 with... Reassurance that there's nothing to be worried about in terms of George and the trial and the business. Steve wouldn't spend all this time in jail if he was guilty, convinced that it wasn't him. Like at that point, if he was in jail and he did do it, it would just be acceptance and living out his time in jail. But if he was fixated for years at that point of it not being him, despite being in jail, I think it's pretty safe to say that. It was not him, aside from the fact that we obviously come to know that it's not him. I think rationally it makes sense that this is a very reliable fact from Steve. So the next thing is we get into Keller's argument about fathers and ultimately his argument for why he thinks that Annie and Steve should have reconciliation, which ultimately I don't think is a very good argument because I think... It's based on projection and uh, extreme bias. So I don't think it's from a place of him wanting what's best. Well, obviously, I mean, them having reconciliation is best because he ends up being innocent. So, I mean, on the one hand, it makes sense that Keller would argue that because he knows that Steve is innocent. There is no reason to have bitterness against him to begin with. But his argument is still very much inaccurate and that is just projection of his own feelings rather than i mean it still is reality of the situation because steve's innocent but i don't know he's being very contradictory to reality at the same time because he says my only accomplishment is my son i ain't brainy that's all i accomplished now a year 18 months your father will be a free man who is he going to come to annie his baby you. He'll come old mad into your house. Anne. that can't matter anymore, Joe. Keller, I don't want that to come between us. Anne, I can only tell you that that could never happen. Keller, you're in love now, Annie, but believe me, I'm older than you and I know a daughter is a daughter and a father is a father and it could happen. And just this implication that he's your father. Like, he has to be good. Because he's your father, because you are his child, therefore everything is done for your benefit. How, so how could you ever be mad at your parent? Which is very much projection of trying to convince himself that's the case because he doesn't know if that will actually be the case with his own son. Yeah, I think it's, it's hard because people have such drastically different relationships with their family, with their parents especially, you either have really good spiritual relationships with your family and your parents, or you have unhealthy ones. And obviously, the ideal is that your father, especially in a marriage, being symbolic of Christ in relation to the church, is supposed to have your best interests. He is supposed to lead you to good things. He is supposed to be doing things for your benefit, for the big picture for what's ultimately the best for you. And so it's all the more heartbreaking when people have abusive fathers, when people have fathers who abandon them. Maybe some of you guys do. I I don't know all of your situations, but I think, you know, we all have broken relationships and a lot of people have broken parental relationships, but at least to me anyway, it, it almost seems like When someone has a broken father relationship, it's almost more negatively impactful. I'm basing this on nothing but just spiritual analogy. (laughs) But it seems like that the people I've known in my life who have broken father relationships, like that seems to much more drastically devastate them than people who have broken mother relationships. Like those are still... Equally devastating, but I think there's potential sin irony that there could be more often broken father relationships and they could cause a lot more destruction as a result because of our failure to reflect God as sinful humans and fathers being the main people who are supposed to symbolize Christ in a family. It's sad. It's heartbreaking and it's all the more humbling and makes me all the more joyful to know that I have I'm lucky to have a good father and a good mother relationship because not everyone has that but I mean we all have different I don't think you can live a human life without having at least one if not much more broken relationships like I don't think it's possible to live on this earth with. 100% intact relationships at the end of it. We've all experienced grief and loss in some way or another, whether it's familial or not. It's easy to compare or envy, but at the end of the day, I think it helps to just remember that we can only control what we can control in our relationships. And so, ultimately we can still benefit those people even if they're not in our lives because we can still pray for them if nothing else and just know that there's really there's no point comparing and even if someone seems to have more intact familial relationships than you like as i said it's pretty impossible to not have broken relationships period so just remember keep that in perspective keep in mind that we all have broken relationships in some way it might not be in the exact same ways but we've all experienced the loss of people from situational or circumstantial things it's sad but it's also something that we can bond over as a human experience and also just proof that this type of brokenness is inevitable and we can't expect ourselves to be Speaking mostly to myself, we can't expect ourselves to be relationally perfect. And on top of that, our broken relationships are proof that we're not God and we're not in a holy place yet where the standard would be 100% wholeness in relationships. I think it's just one more symptom of the fact that we're in a broken world, whether it's your relationship with your dad, your mom, your siblings, cousins, friends... The people we've lost for one reason or another you know we can at least empathize with one another in that way and that's pretty cool so even in the hard things there can be beauty even if you have to search a lot more for it or suffer a lot more before you can actually see what the beauty could possibly be but that's the cool thing about god is even when it's really hard to see you can eventually uproot it sometimes it just takes a long time and sometimes it might not take until death and rebirth and eternity. If we're going to talk about big, big picture, let's talk about that. <laughs> and ultimately, like, just side tangent, that just helps me with everything. Is like, just remember what's the ultimate destination. And that just keeps everything in perspective. And as such, you don't have to lose your mind about anything. Because how tiny of a blip is... What you're going through in comparison to literal eternity that our brains can never comprehend. What is eternity? What is infinity? We can't wrap our minds around that. <laughs> we never will. Moving on, I pointed out a quote from Chris on a couple pages later. So he's, Chris is talking with George in this moment. George says, Are you married yet to Anne? Anne, no, I'm not married yet. George, you're not going to marry him. Anne, why am I not going to marry him? George, because his father destroyed your family. Chris, now look, George. George, cut it short, Chris. Tell her to come home with me. Let's not argue you know what I've got to say. Chris, George, this is the line I picked out. George, you don't want to be the voice of God, do you? And then he says, that's been your trouble all your life, George. You dive into things. What kind of a statement is that to make? You're a big boy now. I mean, George is correct, but I think this definitely showcases both our stubbornness and pride of just wanting everyone to feel and admit that we are right in whatever we're thinking or feeling. Even if we are, like, in this moment, George is not just content with saying what he feels but he wants everyone else to agree with him it's hard when we have moments like that where we feel really confident in literally anything i have no idea but because of that like we want to convince people Um, we want to just beat it into the ground and force them to agree with what we're saying um, sometimes in a negative way, sometimes in a positive way, um, whether it's a truth or a lie. Either way, it's, like, very coercive and, like, not healthy. Don't do that. And ultimately, it's like you can't be the voice of God. You can feel what you feel. And, and same with, like, that also reminds me of, like, convictions. When you have convictions, that doesn't mean other people have the exact same convictions. As long as they are walking a step in the Bible, you cannot make people believe All the exact same things that you do. Part of faith is just accepting what you can control and accepting what you can't in in no way, even if it's for like the best reason ever, the best argument ever, you cannot make people do something. You cannot control people. Like we're back to manipulation. I feel like we talked about that last time, but like there's so much of that and there's there's so much of that with like pride because you really Feel something really strongly and so you you put pressure on people to feel the exact same way when really it's like that's never going to happen because you're always viewing things through a specific bias like even when you don't want to be biased our entire lives are biased because we have the particular experiences we have particular relationships the particular belief systems the particular opinions that are poured into us the particular opinions we pour out to other people (laughs) and on and on we, we can't be the voice of God for other people. But yeah, it is control to the extreme when we think we can be God, when we think that we can make people do what we want. <sighs> God abhors control among humans. He abhors manipulation. He probably just looks down all the time and is like, why are they once again trying to be me? They're never going to be me. And some people just, they spend years or decades thinking they can be that way and they can't. Really sad, but (laughs) moving on. So the next page, I like when everything is close together. Keller accepted the defective parts according to George, but covered up the evidence because it was over phone. So George is like explaining the whole scenario. And front to back, what actually happened with Steve and Keller and the pilots, the B-40s, the cracked cylinder heads, everything. There's a lot of ruckus over there. (laughs) (laughs) The night forming came to him. Okay, so first he says dad came to work that day, as in Steve. Night forming came, showed him the cylinder heads. They're coming out of the process with defects. There was nothing wrong with the process. So dad went to the phone. And called the Kellers and told Keller to come down. The morning passed and Keller didn't come. So Steve called again. By this time, he had over a hundred defectives. And the army was like, we need stuff. But there wasn't anything to ship other than the defectives. So Keller told him, because they were scrambling and it was urgent, weld, cover up the cracks, and ship them out. So Steve did not autonomously do it. Keller told him to. It has been confirmed. And Chris is like, are you through now? Because he's like, you just came here with a motive. I don't believe you. And then he goes on to say Keller couldn't come because he was sick. He got the flu suddenly. But he promised to take responsibility. But because it was a phone call, he could easily deny it in court. And that's what he ended up doing doing there's just a lot of negativity in this act especially it's just like deception and manipulation and he's controlling his his narrative through his actions even though it's not the truth because how would they know the wiser and why would they take steve's word for it when he could easily just blame steve and make everyone else blame steve too this goes into my first theme I pulled out of the act that is confidence versus insecurity. I feel like up until this point we've already seen it a lot how in both ways George in a truthful way is very confident that Keller did this. but in this scenario from the past that I just summarized, Keller was also confident in what dinner didn't happen even though he clearly was lying. So confidence can be used for good, and it can also be used to manipulate a narrative. On the other hand, there's insecurity. Both literal insecurity. Anne's kind of being told all this stuff from the neighbors and things, and she doesn't believe it necessarily, but it's kind of like, okay, she's getting more and more stories that people are blaming Keller over her dad, which I don't think she'd really heard a ton of before. You have the constant insecurity of Chris interacting and arguing with everything that's happening while not being 100% sure of what's going on. And then you have Keller with insecurity, and obviously Mother has had insecurity this whole time, getting agitated with people disagreeing with her, but um, Keller's insecurity has mainly come out through projection of indirect insecurity where he's overall trying to act confident, but yet his insecurity is leaking out through the ways that he talks to others and talks about others. And I feel like indirect insecurity like that is the most interesting because if you are the person who's being indirectly insecure, you feel like you're being so smart. Like, ah, no one will be able to tell that I'm insecure right now. But if you're someone looking in on the insecure person, it can be pretty easy to tell that they are insecure, even if they're not explicitly stating it or trying to, like, put attention on other people in the midst of it. So, I don't know. I just think that's interesting when it comes to insecurity. Generally, they're, like, the antithesis of one another, but at the same time, you can be confident in your insecurity in a healthy way where you're very aware I would say as you mature, like, you become more confident in what your insecurities are and try to combat them more often and communicate them more often so other people understand what they are and can better love and support you through your insecurities. And on the flip side, you could be insecure in your confidence and just have low self-esteem. I feel like that's kind of mother. is like she's, she's hanging on to what she believes by a thread. And it's like, insecure confidence that could break at any minute. I think the moment when it's broken is is when she punches Keller later on. <laughs> so then in this media medium in this middle section there is like this this stretch where Lydia and George interact and there's this whole, oh, romance or past romance feelings or whatever. And then Chris and Anne obviously still really want to get married and they're like lovey-dovey in and off on on or off throughout the act and really throughout the whole play. Um, they're like lovey-dovey and then when mother comes around. It's like, okay, we have to figure out when we're going to tell her. And then it's like, oh, she's going lovey-dovey again. It just kind of ebbs and flows. I just feel like for all of these people love in this story is very much used as a distraction from reality i would say even like like all of the relationships even like how fondness and love for larry is used like it's all kind of used as distraction and it's all kind of used as a band-aid for the internal wounds of all these people for a moment, George can be nostalgic with Lydia so that he doesn't have to face this tension with his sister and, you know, what's going to happen to her when she finds out the truth, and with her brother, and also with the colors, mother with Anne. And there's so much tension going around. There's so much anger and frustration going around that people are, like, forcing love into the picture, even if it kind of fits really awkwardly and sporadically and really ultimately is very out of place in the midst of so much tension that it makes sense that all the characters are trying to shove it in in every crack possible when they can because yeah it's a very tense filled play let alone act then we find out that steve never really learned or at least according to keller never really learned to take blame so this is the argument or why Steve is guilty. Keller is like remembering all these things. George says, What'd you expect him to think of you, Keller? I'm sad to see he hasn't changed. As long as I know him 25 years, the man never learned how to take the blame. You know that, George. Um, and then he said, Keller says, I mean, like, in 1937, when we had the shop on Flood Street, he damn near blew us all up with that heater he left burning for two days without water. He wouldn't admit that was his fault, either. I had to fire a mechanic to save his face. And I feel like, really, this is just, like, a dumb, random argument. Like, it's from so long ago. And for all we know, like, that could be the only time he ever didn't take blame for something. Or who knows, maybe that didn't even happen like that in Keller's line. Because we quickly find out that... Keller's not very consistent. And so he's probably a liar. So yeah, he tries to concoct this pretty faulty argument that Steve never learned to take blame. You know, he keeps saying all these things to build up his argument. George keeps saying, I know, but he kind of like agrees, but tries to continue. But he keeps getting cut off by Keller because Keller thinks he's just like on a roll. When in reality for George is probably like, yes, what you're saying is true, but there's more to it than that. Kind of reminds me of Harry Potter. If anyone else loves Harry Potter, like Harry gets put on trial for doing magic outside of school because that's not allowed. And it feels like cuz this happens to Harry in his trial, that I feel like my sense is this is what George is happening to George here cuz he keeps getting cut off and unable to finish his thoughts after agreeing with Keller, is he's getting asked a bunch of leading questions, and there's additional information, but Keller's not giving him space to explain or say what that is. That is my hunch of what is happening. And so he keeps saying, he keeps bringing up remembering. Remember them, remember these moments that I'm bringing up as proof of my argument. And the second theme I pulled out of this act And the play is thinking versus remembering or feeling. In this sense, I feel like remembering or feeling is negative, whereas thinking is good, which is perfect for applying to Tony Opilots Pilots because Tony and Pilots constantly uses thinking as a metaphor for faith versus sleeping. And so in this sense, remembering or feeling, it's based on like, well, if this happened, that's how it always is, even if that's inaccurate. Whereas thinking is like, let's be present to the present rather than the past and discern what's actually happening here. For instance, like they're remembering things, which is the next point. They're quote-unquote remembering that Keller didn't get sick. And then they're remembering a way he actually did, which completely contradicts themselves and proves they're lying. And so it just goes to show that like, you have to be thinking like, yes, you can remember all you want or claim to remember things, but remembering can easily be changed or seen in bias or manipulated. Whereas thinking about the present can bring to light a lot of things like, uh, they're contradicting each other. They're trying to get us, once again, it's like, By remembering or feeling, you're using diversionary tactics to get away from the truth and the reality. I think that's also a tool that Satan and sin use all the time, is they try to get us to get bogged down with things that are peripheral. They try to get us fixated on things that are not the present, like past or the future, so that we're not in as life-giving a position as we could be if we were thinking and sitting in the present. And in that way, I think Keller's constant desire to remember is to be nostalgic, is to live in the past rather than the present. And once again, that's like projection. He's emphasizing remembering. He's emphasizing going backwards, which is probably a defense mechanism to having to be present, having to sit with the current day. So the exact thing with the sickness is they're talking about the past and this huge time frame and everything that's going on. And Keller says, I ain't got time to get sick. Mother says, he hasn't been laid up in 15 years. Keller, except my flu during the war. Mother, huh? And the fact that she says, huh, is like even more proof that this is a lie. Keller, my flu when I was sick during the war. (laughs) I'm just imagining that like very obvious type of lying where you like pause and then you stare at someone with really wide eyes and go, the war. <laughs> and then mother, well, sure. I mean, except for that flu. And George is like, this smells like BS. <laughs> because how, would, it would be one thing if you like forgot he had the common cold one time, but if he had that flu, like you would not forget that regardless of what it was. And so he is like, Okay, I'm going to let you dig your own grave at this point, basically. And then, Frank comes in and interrupts everything. He has the finished horoscope that we talked about in Act 1 for Larry. Ultimately, he says that November 25th was Larry's favorable day. And that is just, like, ironic timing. That it's like, hey, so because of this, he's alive. And it's, like, another lie at the perfect time. I don't really know what Frank's intentions are. Like, he could be genuinely believing himself and, like, separate from from all of the lying with the Kellers. But it's just really ironic timing that there's, like, another lie on top to further avoid truth so Mother can cling on to something that's not true rather than face reality. But this actually very swiftly uh, turns. Anne and George leave because George is, he already knows what's up. Even further confirmation through the ridiculousness of the lying and inconsistencies. And he tries to get Anne to leave. She doesn't want to because she loves Chris. And she chases him off as he's leaving. And then it's just the Kellers. This is where it escalates. Mother packed Chris's bags to leave. And then of course that bothers Chris because he's like, why do you want her to leave? I don't remember exactly when they tell them they want to get married. It might be Act 3, but, like, in comparison to the rest of the story, that part of it's really not relevant. So, regardless. Oh, yes. Yeah, she she wanted Anne to leave because she's convinced he's still alive and she's Larry's girl, so that's that. So, at this point, she basically proves that she knows that they want to get married because she's resisting it. And then, okay, right here is when Chris says, I'm marrying his girl. And Mother's like, Never. Keller, you lost your mind. Mother, you have nothing to say. Keller, I got plenty to say. Three and a half years, you've been talking like a maniac. And then she punches him. Which, like, in and of itself is, like, good for you because him just being rude in that moment. But also, like, he's right because I think she was falsely clinging to untruth. I think she was trying to somehow convince herself that the truth wasn't the truth. I don't know. I don't remember if it really in-depth explains if Mother knew the whole time or not. I don't remember that part, so sorry. You you probably remember and I don't. So I'd I'd be curious, like, if she genuinely did believe he was or not. But, I mean, it makes sense that it's just kind of like, I don't know, because that's the theme of all of this is like, I don't know if it's true. (laughs) So she's mad when he admits that. Larry's dead because by Keller of all people admitting that means everything is Keller's fault and he's dead because of Keller and then mother says to Chris your brother's alive darling because if he's dead your father killed him do you understand me now as long as you live that boy is alive God does not let a son be killed by his father which is such an interesting line because technically God killed Jesus. He sent him to die, knowing that he had to die. And Jesus pleaded with him, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? And God still let him die. So, I mean, if God lets his own son, who has a piece of himself in him die, then why would there be an exception for humans? (laughs) It's very plausible that sons can be killed by fathers because of brokenness. I think this just goes back to just this childlike desperation to find stability in the midst of a whirlwind of events that you never thought you'd find yourself in. Chris starts to ask his dad, then you did it. Keller, he never flew a P-40. Chris, but the others. He deflects. She's out of her mind. Dad, you did it. He never flew a P-40, what's the matter with you? And then it goes on, Dad, Dad, you killed 21 men. And he's like, how could I kill anybody? You know, I didn't kill anybody. And I mean, we all know we collectively killed Jesus. Even Tyler sings about that. (laughs) Um, So none of us are, are exempt from being a murderer. But the final theme as this ends out is blame and responsibility. Keller wants to hold tightly to technicalities because he doesn't want to be blamed. He doesn't want to be called a murderer, especially. And ultimately, I think a lot of that type of thing comes from shame. Like, I think there's always fear of, like, I don't want to be called a racist, or I don't want to be called whatever is, like, spiritually or socially taboo. But none of it is new under the sun. None of us are exempt from all kinds of evil because of sin nature yet we see keller ruthlessly fight to protect his image because he values his son's perception so much and he will do anything to keep that perception pure even if it's based on a lie yet really like the best way to keep someone's perception of you as positive as possible is to take responsibility rather than blaming something else rather than avoiding or deflecting and yet we can convince ourselves that avoiding the responsibility is somehow more beneficial for us in a really selfish way because truth will out no matter what and truth is integrity no matter what it is no matter how bad it is responsibility is all taking responsibility is always good character but it's wild how easily we will do cartwheels around truth if we really are uncomfortable about something when really like all Chris wants in this moment is his dad for to, to admit it even if it's painful and you know with responsibility comes honesty and honesty is always the best policy because even when it's painful it allows us to stay present rather than fearful about potential outcomes But yeah, I think the biggest takeaway from this act is the skewed priorities that Keller has to do all of the things that he does, to have immense insecurity, to focus on the past, to blame others, because he cares way more about his business. He cares way more about how Chris perceives him. And he cares and idolizes these things ultimately so highly that he was willing to sacrifice 21 men to uphold his business and to uphold his son's view of him, which comes crashing down anyway. And I think that's just proof that the things that we try to make gods will never be, and they're always going to fail, and the debris is always going to hit us. because our priorities are never going to be healthy for us in the simple ways that we want them to be similarly you know business ultimately boils down to status and success and chris's perspective of color ultimately boils down to man as a whole and people's lives and truth are always going to be more important than status status is so earthly and so fleeting it reaps nothing other than very temporary things. Success is also so fickle and is constantly changing in in the eyes of people and patterns and values in societies. Probably the most inconsistent of them all is man and man's opinions, which is speaking also to myself as a recovering people-pleaser, but People's lives and truth and honesty are always going to be more important than people's perceptions of you. And even if the people are seemingly good people or Christians or whatever that means, you can't live by them. Um, people can have good, in- even if people have good intentions, even if people know what's right, like it doesn't matter the reasoning behind people's opinions you're never going to please them all, you're never going to satisfy them all, and they're going to constantly change, and they're not going to be around forever, unlike God's, and that's why his is way more important and way more fulfilling. God proves his power in that anytime we put anything above him, it crashes and burns. It proves its emptiness, thus proving that the only way is God and that's pretty cool you can email entrenchpodcasts at gmail.com with all of your thoughts on act two of all my sons i would love to hear your literary analysis as an alternative to email you can start a discussion in the podcast facebook group by searching entrench podcast group you can find entrench on podmean verbal spotify apple music and amazon music on instagram at entrench underscore pod stay tuned for act three Thank you so much for listening, friends. Stay alive and remember, entrench, you're not alone.